0: Hello, it's Manveen, bringing you an episode from a new podcast series from The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative, Planet Hope. In this series, Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, asks why our planet is changing so rapidly and meets leading experts from around the world who are trying to turn the tide. Through its Perpetual Planet Initiative... Rolex supports individuals and organisations who go above and beyond to safeguard and preserve our planet for the next generation. As the world's population continues to grow, conflicts between people and wildlife over food, resources and space for living are heightening. Take India, for example, the country home to more than an eighth of the world population. Only 5% of its terrain is reserved for nature, but the country is 70% of the world's tigers and half of its Asian elephant population. So if both man and beast, depending on the natural resources that can be found in the country's forests, they often collide.
1: In this village in central India, the threat of attack lurks around every corner. The townspeople live and breathe it. We can't walk the streets after dark. That's when the tigers and bears roam. Maya Kiretkar has seen tigers up close and still shudders at the thought. She knows many others have died.
0: India's last official count of the tiger population in 2018 found that it had doubled in a little over 10 years when the government began its conservation efforts. But with the big cats still considered an endangered species and with their natural habitats shrinking, will the number of human-animal conflicts continue to increase?
1: I was walking with four people for my team, and we happened to be walking up a hill, and we had, you know, at one point, one of us spotted some scrape marks that looked very fresh, and we said, okay, there is some carnivore around here, you know, 100 meters up the road. We saw this giant tiger, and he happened to be facing the other way, didn't see us for about a minute, turned around and just crouched down, and for a second there, everybody's mind is, is he gonna charge? And then one of us coughed.
0: I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today, we hear from the woman who is using technology to forge a peace between humans and wildlife. In this episode, we're connecting to Bangalore in India. With a population of 11 million, Bangalore is the capital of India's southern Karnataka state. Known for being the centre of India's high tech industry, the city is often referred to as the Silicon Valley of India. But despite its sprawling urban landscape and advances in tech, the city sits on the very edge of some pretty impressive parks. Just 22 kilometres to the south of Bangalore city centre, you'll find a 25,000 acre national park called Banagatta, home to mammals such as the Indian leopard sloth bear, golden jackal, wild boar, tigers and more. And that's just one of eight national parks that sits just outside the bustling city, allowing for an increasing amount of human-wildlife interaction. The vast majority sadly ending up in conflict. But hope for peace between humans and animals in India is not lost.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Kriti Karant. I'm a scientist, conservationist, explorer and storyteller. I run a 39-year-old conservation NGO in India called the Centre for Wildlife Studies.
0: Krifi's research in India and Asia spans 20 plus years and encompasses many issues in human dimensions of wildlife conservation. Kriffi's entire life has been devoted to finding peace between animals and people within India and the projects that she has developed have been life-changing to hundreds of communities. But before she tells me more about the revolutionary wildlife conservation project she's working on, I asked her how many wildlife attacks has India seen in recent years?
1: We have over 100,000 incidents reported to the government for which uh, some form of excretia compensation uh, is paid out. 80% of the losses are people losing uh, crops and property to elephants and other herbivores. 15% 15% of the losses are losing livestock to uh, tigers and leopards. And fortunately, only 5% of the losses are human injury and human death, which could be uh, attributed to sloth bears, tigers, elephants, and a few other species. What's very obvious is that over the last, you know, 50 years, you've seen habitats shrinking. We've recovered wildlife in some places. We've lost wildlife in other places, uh, the high densities of people who live next to wildlife areas in India results in this very tense situation between people and wildlife.
0: It's a high wildlife country. It's not just tigers, but I think that's what we're going to sort of home in on a bit today. With tigers, I mean, you mentioned they're the 100,000 average a year. What's the trend like, though? What's, you know, what are we seeing? Is it up over time or down? Is there any sort of discernible...
1: So uh, with tigers, obviously, there is no crop damage and property damage, right? Their uh, sort of main issues are livestock predation, uh, which could be cows, goats, sheep that people own. Uh, This conflict takes place both inside and outside parks because people go in to graze their livestock and uh, it's killed by a big cat. Or tigers and leopards also spill over outside and uh, uh, kill livestock in people's So there's both sides to this. And occasionally you do see human injury and human death and some emergence of man-eating tigers. Uh, I think human-tiger conflict certainly is growing, but I don't know how much of it is simply because more people are reporting on it, whether it be the media or people who are affected. Uh, It's a complex set of issues facing tigers in India today, but we do have 70% of the world's tigers. So we are very, very important if you want to save wild tigers across the planet.
0: Just that, you know, you say it's hard to sort of untangle why the numbers, maybe it might be better reporting. Because I think tiger numbers are, yeah, obviously you've got population growth, but also in humans. But also you've got, I think tiger numbers are recovering, aren't they? Thanks to some very targeted conservation efforts.
1: I think it's a mixed bag. Um, my PhD research kind of established that if you look at uh, tiger ranges over the last 150 years, there's been a massive shrinkage of tigers from and disappearance from 65% of where they used to be over 150 years. Now they're largely restricted to protected areas. And so the, the 5% of land set aside as wildlife parks in India are very, very critical For tigers, but then there's also the issue of what do you do with the animals that now are found outside. In some places, thanks to I think efforts by the Indian government, many, many conservation NGOs and individuals, you have seen Tiger populations stabilize, and so one of these places are um, is Nagarhole and Bandipur national parks, where we've worked for almost four decades now, where the populations have been very, very stable. In other parts of India, tigers have completely disappeared. So I don't think it's a complete success. I think it's a selective success. Depends on which part of India and which park you're looking at.
0: And just in terms of those, you know, you mentioned people sort of losing livestock, or in the sort of in some cases even being harmed or, or killed themselves i mean what sort of what sort of support is the government at a sort of central or local level giving to people living near these species
1: so if you lose livestock uh, you can file a claim uh, usually you get back 60 to 80 percent of the value of what you lost it's never a hundred percent but these claims are processed and one of the conservation programs we launched uh, seven years ago Wild seve is very much involved in ensuring the claims are uh, not rejected and we track the submission of the claim and make sure people do get some money back i i think it's a complex relationship because it's not just the loss of a uh, of livestock right It's the trauma experienced by people, which is often repeated trauma when these animals come back. So one initiative that we've done is go out and build livestock sheds. It's very simple. You go out there and we put 50% of the cost of a shed down where we know there are repeat attacks taking place from leopards and tigers. And that instantly has helped solve the problem. Uh, I think it's a very targeted solution, but it seems to be working where we've done it. We've never had losses post-building of a livestock Mm -hmm. shed, right? But it does take a mindset shift for people to stop taking their livestock into the parks and start stall feeding. And so there's a lot of sort of behavioral, cultural uh, negotiation conversation that has to take place along the way
0: so it's like quite a simple measure but a reminder as well that it, you've got to work with people and it's about <laughs> people's attitudes yeah and also i assume part of the importance of people getting paid compensation there and working with them with measures like that to try and stop conflicts in the first place i imagine part of that is about sort of trying to avoid people sort of taking matters into their own hands because i mean can you just talk about i know i'm sure it varies massively from place to place in india but How are people sort of reacting at a local level to attacks and conflicts with wildlife?
1: The idea is to prevent retaliation, right? And retaliation can occur when you have repeated losses to a set of animals and a sense of frustration builds, and you get a sense that there's no one to help you, and yet you're expected to go on tolerating these losses. And we are hoping to make sure that through our support to all of these families who live right next to many parks that they don't retaliate. So for a tiger or a leopard, it could be poisoning the livestock carcass. And typically, the big cats come back for a second or third feeding and then die from poisoning. It's an awful, painful death. If it's an elephant, it could be electrocution, it could be other forms of going after these animals, right? Mm. And so it's it's very tense. If this happens to you once a year, you may be more tolerant. But we've come across families where this has happened 70 times a year. And any urban person would be shocked at the level of sort of non-retaliation and tolerance that a lot of people in rural India uh, display, but I think this is what makes India special and India different. Because despite all of the pressures, both from growth and development and high densities of people, there is this inherent recognition that we have to share space and resources with other life forms. It's when things get bad that you see the retaliation.
0: Where, where do you think that tolerance stems from? You know, you're saying that's a sort of special spirit in in, in India.
1: I think it's a combination of factors, uh, which is, uh, I think, partly religion, partly culture. Uh, We've always had uh, animistic religions in India. You actually have three million gods. Many of these gods take different animal forms. Mm
0: -hmm. What
1: I am concerned about is um, as we become more homogenized, and part of global society, this appreciation of how unique each of mm. our cultures are is very quickly disappearing. And with that, this connection to animals and connection to nature also disappearing.
0: I want to sort of go back in time a bit, Krifi, to um, your sort of childhood. I mean, can you remember the first time you saw a tiger? Can you recall that? Uh,
1: absolutely. Um, I started going to the jungle the second I was potty trained, which was basically a year and a few months old. I happened to see my first tiger with my father and my grandfather. They used to make these cars called ambassadors those days. And my grandfather had this white ambassador that he traveled by road across India with. And I remember, you know, it being 5.36 in the evening and going down this bumpy road and with my father and grandfather and my father spotted this beautiful tigress just kind of ambling along the side of the road And it's stayed etched in my memory, right? And I've had many, many, many tiger and leopard sightings. It never gets boring. It's equally thrilling that I saw a tiger three weeks ago to seeing one, you know, 42 years ago now, right? So... I don't count how many tigers I see. Every single one of them bring me absolute joy. And it's not just about tigers for me. Uh, Watching elephants, watching most mammals. uh, I'm not so much a bird person. I'm very much a mammal person. Uh, I just love being outdoors and watching these animals. And there are days where I don't see anything. And just being out there and watching these spectacular landscapes and stunning trees is good enough to refresh and kind of reboot my soul
0: what's the sort of thrill about tigers especially is it the sort of power the elegance i don't know what is you know you mentioned this tigress that you saw
1: it's very hard to describe for me uh, i i mean the joy is actually very similar when i see a tiger or a leopard or wild dogs or sloth bears i think i'm just a large carnivore person um, <laughs> and it's you know it's very hard to describe each of these animals are unique and special. I think the important thing is I most often go in with no expectations. Uh, last year, I remember I was walking with four people from my team and we happened to be walking up a hill. And we had, you know, at one point, one of us spotted some scrape marks that looked very fresh. And we said, OK, there is a, some carnivore around here. Uh, we didn't know if it was a tiger or a leopard, you know, 100 meters up the road. We saw this giant tiger just right up on the road and he happened to be facing the other way didn't see us for about a minute turned around and just crouched down and for a second there you know everybody's mind is is he going to charge and then one of us coughed and the minute he heard our cough this cat you know just jumped off the road like a silly house cat and disappeared right but for that <laughs> one second when he turned around and he crouched you know everybody was like oh shit this is it <laughs> so i think uh predators are just thrilling so
0: mm. yeah no no quite quite um and i think you're um i'm right thinking you're i think your father was a, a biologist and conservationist who was interested in tigers as well do would you credit your sort of interest in them for to him or was it just something that sort of developed independently
1: no I mean uh, my dad is (laughs) known as one of the world's greatest tiger biologists he Mm. pioneered a lot of very interesting innovative work on tigers I do think I was very lucky because he took me out and he just let me be I don't think Neither he nor I expected that I would become a wildlife biologist. I actually, uh, growing up, wanted to be a lawyer or an architect. I had no interest in becoming a wildlife biologist. But I do think there's this sub- subliminal 17 years of a childhood spent watching animals does something to your brain. Uh, and by the time I was in you know my early 20s and I had to do research, uh, I came back to India repeatedly designing projects, even though I was studying in the U.S., And then when I was done studying, made the call to come back home because I just felt this very, very deep connect to my country, to these animals. And I didn't want to be far away from them. Like you mentioned, I think being close to nature is very important.
0: Mm. Did your sort of relationship and your feelings towards tigers, did that when you were sort of younger, did that mark you out as a sort of outlier from your sort of friends and peers and that they maybe viewed tigers differently as a sort of well i fear or fear or tension i don't know was no, it, was it, you... i
1: think it was just both my parents had phds and were professionals my mom traveled a lot and when she did she would leave me with my dad who often was in the jungle right so i got to skip school a lot and i just had kind of had to go along uh, doing weird things with him right which was collecting bear poop uh, learning to set up camera traps we would stay in this lab which was filled with skulls of gauze and elephant. And I just kind of assumed this was normal. I don't think I ever traded notes with my friends on whether what I was doing was different. It was. Only, I think it was only much later that I realized that I truly had this very strange but very happy childhood.
0: And just to sort of connect yeah, you know, then with now, I mean, how would you... And I'm sure this change is is different from place to place within India. But how broadly would you say people's attitudes have changed over time towards tigers in particular since you were younger?
1: So I do think there's a lot more public awareness, interest in wildlife conservation today uh, than there has ever been, right? Uh, Part of it fueled by social media and Instagram and all of this. I do think there are more people who care for wildlife. I also think... There are more people trying to save wildlife, tigers and beyond. Don't think there are enough people doing this professionally. A lot of this is on the side as volunteers, as something you feel passionate about. So if you look at the complexity of wildlife conservation issues in India, I definitely feel there should be more people involved.
0: It's interesting what you said about um, social media, because I mean, people might sort of think, well, you know, I don't know, it's sort of like a knee-jerk kind of, for people to say well you know social. what's one of the things that's alienating us from nature and people looking at their screens but actually you're saying it's perhaps the opposite
1: no i think cameras being easily available less expensive Mm. accessibility for middle class indians has certainly gone up right so you often Mm. find uh, photographers filmmakers social media influencers with huge followings of Mm. you know two million five million people and people are waiting with bated breath for the next picture that they're going to post, right? But mm. our, always the hard question is, can we get beyond this picture? Go beyond what it takes to save these animals, both from a wildlife biology perspective to a conservation management perspective. And can you push people on that gradient of, I want to go as a tourist and take beautiful pictures, to I want to actually do something for a particular animal or a particular place. And that proportion of people, I think, is still very small.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting, going from sort of awareness to action. And I wondered if you could just describe for listeners what Wild Save is and what you set out to do with it.
1: So Wild Save was the first of five conservation programs that I've designed in the last seven years. Having done all of this research on human wildlife conflict, realized that the first... And biggest challenge was the fact that people were losing livestock crops, getting injured or killed by animals, and there was deep frustration and they were unable to get help, even though there was money set aside for this. And so we, as simple as we launched a toll-free number in 600 villages around two premier parks, uh, Nagarhole and Bandipur in India, and they started to call in. And every time they called, we went. We went within the first 24 to 48 hours We help them assess the damage and file the claim. We went if they called us once. We went if they called us a hundred times. And so this, over time, has built enormous community goodwill because people understand that we come not just for the animals, but we come to help people as well. It may not seem like a huge loss if you're somebody from a city, but uh, a single herd of elephants coming and wiping out your crops could mean you don't get to feed your family for the next six months a loss of one livestock. I mean, livestock actually function as mobile banks in some way, right? So every animal gone mm-hmm. is, a, you know, one a bit of your savings gone, right? And so initially I was not sure whether people would even call. Now the program is in four parks and soon over time we will grow it and establish it in 12 parks where there's still very high human-wildlife conflict. The idea also is not for us, as an external party and NGO, to dispense the funding. There is money set aside by the Indian government. It is just to make sure it gets to people.
0: Is the technology interesting in terms of the way you're reaching people?
1: It's a toll-free number and people calling in. Of course, we have a portal where all these calls are logged and tracked. And you know, uh, it's not high tech. It's very, very low tech, but it's responsive tech where it's needed.
0: Yeah, it works. Yeah, and and how many? Um, people would you estimate you've helped since you began that scheme?
1: Uh, Over 10,000 families.
0: That's huge, right?
1: I think so. I think we could help a lot more people though.
0: Mm, I suppose given the population of India, it gives you a...
1: (laughs) And the population of people living with wildlife being very high as well.
0: Are there sort of estimates for what that sort of figure is, for how many people are sort of living cheap by jowl?
1: Several million people live within the first two kilometres of the boundary of a park, and they often bear the brunt of conflict, right? It's the first kilometre from the edge of a park that has the highest conflict, and then it starts to tail off as you go further away.
0: And I suppose the flip side as well is obviously the, the impact you're having in terms of helping species. I mean, do you have sort of estimates on how many tigers you might have avoided being killed or
1: i do think uh, we are tracking sort of uh, how many retaliatory incidents taking place and they have certainly gone down there's far less electrocution of elephants there's less poisoning the first response now is to call us as opposed to reacting we've had crazy things like you know there was a man trapped in a little shed and there were a herd of elephants right outside and he's called us while this is going on saying, please come help me. You know, I don't want to do anything. I have a gun, but I don't want to do anything. Can you come help? So it takes a while to build trust and confidence, but that's something we've done slowly over time.
0: How did that episode pan out with the guy in the shed?
1: Eventually the elephants left, but he didn't lose his cool and he didn't retaliate. (laughs)
0: We're talking to the wildlife conservationist Kriffy Caramp Criffi has made it clear how important it is for local communities that live near wild spaces to have access to support and resources from projects such as Wild Seavey. Launched in 2015 Wild Cvey is an award-winning novel conservation intervention that as Kriffi has explained provides timely assistance to people affected by human wildlife conflict. The program allows people to start using communication as a first response, instead of violence, protecting numerous species. And providing free financial assistance to those who sadly lost a part of their livelihood, be it destroyed crops, livestock or property damage, can transcend barriers of illiteracy and stress when it comes to applying for complex government claims. I asked Griffey how winning the Rolex Award for Enterprise in 2019 helped to support her work and allowed her to continue to push the boundaries within wildlife conservation.
1: You know, I'd heard of the Rolex Prize, and obviously it's one of the most prestigious recognitions anybody could get. Initially, I was really skeptical because thousands of people apply. And as I kept moving up the shortlist, I just kept saying, No, the next round I'm going to get rejected. Next round I'm going to get rejected. And by the time I made the semi finals of 10, that's when it really dawned on me that I had a real shot of actually being. Uh, recognized. What it did was give me nine friends who were finalists with me, who are still friends today. But more than anything, I think it showed that one an Indian woman scientist could get as far as I did. I hope that serves as inspiration for many, many young Indian women, many scientists, many conservationists from the global south. It also showed that by recognizing programs like Seve and Chale that a lot of the innovation today is being done not in Europe and not in America. That solutions that are different and creative are being developed in Asia and Africa and South America. And I think the learning goes both ways today. It's not east to west anymore or north to south.
0: That's uh, something to be conscious of. And I think you mentioned um, Charle there as well, one of your other projects. Do you just want to explain what that is? Yeah,
1: so Charle means school in Canada, the language I speak. As we had implemented Seve uh, and we had done research, we realised that a lot of the kids who were growing up around these wildlife areas were not excited when an elephant showed up in their village or they got to see a tiger. They had very different reactions than I did or most urban kids would. And we realized that they had seen a lot of trauma, potentially death and injury very close to them, if not in their house, certainly in their village. So in 2019, I co-designed this program with uh, Dr. Gabby Salazar. And the idea was to create a conservation education program that would inspire kids to connect to Indian wildlife, get them to understand why we're... um, Why does conflict happen? How do you cope in a conflict situation? And mostly just fall in love with India's wildlife and wild places. We started the program in 2018. And over the last five years, we've gone to 700 schools and worked with 28,000 children. Obviously, in the middle, uh, during the pandemic, for one and a half years, we were not able to do much But we're very, very ambitiously scaling the program. I work very closely with National Geographic as an explorer, and currently we're kind of expanding the program from its current four-module version to 10. It uses art, storytelling, games, and an experiential learning framework, which is common to a lot of kids growing up in Europe and in America, but it's not in Indian schools, right? It is available, and it's going to be implemented in seven Indian languages and the idea is to take it across the entire Western Guards, which is a biodiversity hotspot, which has 70 wildlife areas and work with about 3,000 schools over the next three to five years.
0: Got you. I and mean, presumably that is a, okay, we talked about some of the sort of practical elements of Trying to reduce human wildlife conflict, and you know, you talked we talked about compensation earlier on, and sort of practical measures people can take to protect their livestock. I, I imagine this—it's sort of looking bigger picture and longer term. This education element is a huge part of this, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have wild save, which is sort of the short term, immediate response to something going wrong in uh, people's lives connected to wildlife. We have wild chale, which is the extra other end, mm-hmm. which is sort of long term you know, investing in children as stewards of the environment, as stewards of wildlife and hoping to induce uh, some appreciation for wildlife and behavior change so that as they grow into adults and they see these issues, their first reaction is not to retaliate, right? And then we have other programs that fall in between the two. Like with most conservation issues, I don't think there's one solution that's going to work. You're going to have to deploy a series of them and It'll help people in different ways.
0: And you mentioned about the uh, other laureates there. What's been the impact of that, and how just how has it been being in contact with other people around the world?
1: I've been lucky where both the Rolex network, but also all of these other fellowships, I've been able to meet extraordinary individuals who work on wildlife and non-wildlife problems around the world. So f- first of all, it's always just inspiring to meet others, and it. Quickly reboots you and gets you out of whatever mental funk you may be in when things are going wrong. But for me, you know, Topher Wright was uh, someone I met as part of this, and he and I are collaborating on a project looking at acoustic monitoring for elephants because they cause so much damage can you trigger an early warning system that's linked to acoustic monitoring and so with some friends it's actually they've become collaborators with others they're Mm -hmm. just deeply inspirational friends that I happen to have uh, in my life today
0: do you want to just explain to people who don't know who he is who he is?
1: Uh, so Tofer was the founder and uh, CEO of Rainforest Connection. It's a conservation organization based in California. They repurposed old cell phones, set them up on trees to listen and detect illegal logging. They've done a remarkable job going to 60 other countries around the world. And so when I met him, I said, can we use the same thing? To listen for elephants because elephants make so many interesting noises. Can we then set up an early warning system? So we piloted a project with support from both Rolex and Nat Geo, where you know there was no call library for Asian elephants. So we built the model for African elephants, then tested it. We ran these devices in different locations, and then now we have a call library for Asian elephants, and they make chirps, rumbles, trumpets like. They have a fascinating vocabulary and uh, acoustic modulation. And so I think it is something where we can now design an early warning system to keep people safe. So if you live on the Mm -hmm. edge of a park and these devices are able to listen for elephants coming, they send a message to your cell phone saying, don't step out right now. And that will also help mitigate uh, really severe interactions and loss of life that often happens when people step out.
0: And just to sort of pull together some of the threads we've been talking about if you're sort of taking stock how sort of successful would you say your work has been so far in the round?
1: I think it's been successful in the fact that we've innovated simple to very high-tech solutions tested them showed that they can work in these high wildlife high conflict contexts. What I would like is for them to scale not just in India but be used in other parts in the world particularly where large animals like elephants lions tigers leopards come into contact with people so I think we still have a ways to go.
0: What sort of lessons do you think it holds for other parts of the world you know how how might it be scaled?
1: Um, I think wherever you have large animals that come into close contact with people you're going to have to come up with a set of Interventions that, you know, one, inspire people to save wildlife, second, enable them to cope with losses, and third, you know, live economically viable lives. And so this combination of different things can be tried, I think, very much in many parts of the world where there are large animals. And increasingly, a lot of the conflict is driven by very charismatic, iconic, large wildlife.
0: Mm, I guess a lot of it as well is if, you know, people like me who sort of live in a country where you're very rarely near a large mammal, you know, it's also I guess remembering what the sort of simple human reasons are that it can somehow be difficult living next to... No, and it's as uh,
1: simple as, you know, a wolf shows up in Colorado after 40 years and they shoot it or Mm. how links are perceived in, you know, Sweden and Norway, right? So I think there is a cultural difference, which is why a lot of these animals have persisted with much higher densities of people in Asia and Africa.
0: And if people are listening to this and thinking they like what you do and they'd like to somehow support you, what people do either sort of at a local level in India or elsewhere around the world?
1: So we always look for partnerships that could be in technology, in research. We have over 60 different partnerships with academic uh, universities, think tanks from around the world and other conservation NGOs, because that's what allows us to push on the innovation side. Funding is always needed. I don't think anybody will say no to that. So always happy to have support for specific programs or the organization as well. And we do have a lot of people who volunteer their time. They volunteer their time by coming and walking with us in the forest, by doing field surveys with us or even, you know, enabling tech or other kinds of support, storytelling support. So I think there's a wide set of ways people can engage with the Centre for Wildlife Studies.
0: In terms of looking forward, how hopeful are you that we can, that in India and perhaps also in other parts of the world, get better at living side by side with wildlife? How hopeful would you say you are?
1: I am an optimist. I do think wildlife scientists and conservationists now need to collaborate with the external world. To design these solutions, uh, we have to start being outward looking rather than inward looking. I do think there are simple solutions that can get to a lot of people. And I think India is perfectly poised for this because in many other sectors, particularly finance, we've just shown how accelerated technology and financial payments, these kind of systems have reached every Indian in every corner with just the use of a cell phone right and so it is figuring out that set of solutions that enable people economically build trust inspire them and get them to appreciate how lucky we are to have these animals that we share space with.
0: Oh, yeah. I would also India could set this as an area for you're sort of alluding to there, it's like an area for India to show leadership, right? It could sort of become a, Absolutely. I think or a model for other countries.
1: Unfortunately, if we continue to lose wildlife like we are not just in Asia, but even in Africa today, I feel like India is sort of at the extreme edge in terms of it can't get harder than this in terms of the numbers of wildlife we're trying to protect while meeting human needs, right? So I do think a lot of the solutions we come up with here will be very, very relevant to other countries as they kind of grow and develop and face similar pressures.
0: You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, wildlife and conservationist, Krifi Karamv. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce, and the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson. You can listen to us for free on The Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.